Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. Welcome, welcome back to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. We're having a short season on 10 Caesars, or as I call them, my most favorite and least favorite Roman emperors between Augustus and Constantine. They're certainly intriguing people. In our first episode, we focused on war and peace. In our second episode, on mothers and sons. And today, for our third and final episode, we're going to look at love and sex. Now, for the most famous love affair of them all, you'll have to read my new book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. I'm so excited to have a chance to tell the real story of Cleopatra and Antony and the Battle of Actium. But today, we're going to have a different focus. We're going to look at three or maybe three and a half Roman emperors and uh, their loves. We're going to start with Vespasian, but we're also going to talk about his son Titus. So that's the one and a half. Then we're going to fast forward to Hadrian. And finally, Septimius Severus. So that's our program for today. Let's start with Vespasian. He ruled the Roman Empire, between 69 and 79. He was an ambitious outsider. He was not a member of the Roman elite or a member of the nobility. He came from north of Rome. He came from the Sabine hill country north of Rome. And his family was upper middle class. They were wealthy, but not noble. Earlier on, I think he planned a career in finance, but he had the chance for a military career, and he's shown in it. And except for one point when he was in the doldrums, and according to rumor, he had to go into the transport business. He had a team of mules. Other than that, he had a military career. He was married, but he took a mistress. When Vespasian was in his 20s, in his late 20s, he began an affair with a woman who was at least two years older than him. The time was the mid-30s of our era, and the woman was Kynus. Kynus was a slave. She was almost certainly Greek. She was bright. She was bold. She had a photographic memory, and she worked for perhaps the most powerful woman in Rome as her private secretary. She worked for Antonia Augusta, Antonia Augusta. She was the daughter, Antonia was the daughter of Mark Antony. She was also the mother of the Emperor Claudius and the grandmother of the Emperor Caligula. And as the private secretary of Antonia Augusta, Caius knew all the dirty secrets of the dynasty. She was a very valuable mistress for an ambitious young man like Vespasian to have because she was able to help his career by introducing him to friends in high places. Now, Caius herself was very bold, uh, very audacious. Her great moment came when she helped Antonia reveal 
a conspiracy to the Emperor Tiberius, who was then elderly, and this conspiracy threatened to remove him from the throne. But thanks to the efforts of Antonia and Caius, Tiberius was saved, he suppressed the conspiracy, and Caius was rewarded with her freedom. She became what the Romans called a liberta, a freed woman, an ex-slave. Now, a few years later, there was a new emperor, Claudius, the son of Antonia, who had passed away at that point. Under Claudius, Vespasian got a great break for his career. He got command of a legion that fought in the conquest of Britain, which Claudius had invaded in the year 43. We have to wonder if his relationship with Caius helped Vespasian to get the job. In any case, he made a great success of it. He conquered most of southwestern Britain. And the historian Tacitus says, it was the beginning of Vespasian's good fortune. Fate came to know Vespasian. Indeed, a few years later in 51, he became consul. And now, when Nero came to the throne, in the beginning, that was not such a great moment for Vespasian. He had the wrong connections for Nero, but ultimately Nero had to turn to Vespasian for help. In the year 66, Judea rose in revolt. Nero had already killed off his best general, and Vespasian was someone who Nero thought was militarily competent and not a threat because he did not come from a successful family. He did not have the background that would allow him to become emperor himself. And so Nero sent Vespasian to Syria to raise the troops to put down the revolt in Judea. And the following year, Vespasian got into action. Now, Nero, in the year 68, was forced off the throne and into suicide. And there followed a series of revolving door emperors, a civil war over who would rule Rome. The year 69 was known as the year of the four emperors because there were four pretenders to the throne. And at the end, the fourth one succeeded and won the war that put him in power. He was none other than Vespasian. In 69, Vespasian became the Roman emperor. His success in Judea, where he was making headway and putting down the revolt, uh, helped him onto the throne. Back in Rome, Vespasian renewed his affair with Caius. She was not exactly a trophy wife. She was at least 62 years old when he became emperor. And Vespasian showed that he was not so shallow to pick someone who was young and beautiful. He picked someone who, I think, he loved. The two of them enjoyed a common law marriage. His wife had passed away, so he was free, but he could not marry Caius uh, because as a senator, he was not allowed to marry a freedwoman. He was not allowed to marry an ex-slave. And so he lived with her in a common law marriage. And yet this in and of itself is astonishing. It's astonishing that a Roman emperor would live openly with a freedwoman and a Greek. And Caius had great power and influence. Rumor says that she sold access and offices, including governorships, generalships, and priesthoods. And supposedly, she even gave kickbacks to Vespasian. We don't know if that's true. There are always rumors about the emperor. In any case, Caius was now a wealthy woman. She even owned slaves of her own. She eventually freed some of those slaves, and in the manner of freed men and women, they took her name. She owned a villa in the suburbs of Rome, and we have the pipes from this villa that are stamped with her name, so we know that she had running water, which was a rare luxury. 
and she also had opulent baths. After her death, the estate passed to the emperor, and the baths of kindness were open to the public and maintained by one of the emperor's freedmen. Around the year 75, Kynes died. She was aged about 68. No one ever replaced her in Vespasian's affection. He did not have one woman who meant as much to him as Kynes did. He had a series of mistresses. Well, remarkably, Kynes' tombstone survives to this day. It's elaborate. It was carved of Carrara marble, the same marble that's used for Michelangelo's David. And it was put up by one of her freedmen. We have the dedication. It reads, To Antonia Kynes, freedwoman of the Augusta, the best of patrons. Now, there's no mention of the Emperor Vespasian on her tombstone. But there is a discreet reminder of him. One of the decorations on it is carved laurels. And the laurel was a symbol of the emperor. So discreetly, Kynes is reminding people of her relationship with Vespasian. Vespasian lived four years later. He died in the year 79. When he died, he was a very humorous man. And when he died, he said, uh, methinks I'm becoming a god. As you know, Roman emperors were often deified after their death. Well, he is replaced on the throne. He's followed by his son, Titus who rules Rome for a little over two years, from 79 to 81. Now, Titus is best known as a conqueror. He is famous for conquering Jerusalem and destroying the Second Temple in the year 70. It is commemorated in Rome. In Rome, one of the best-known ancient monuments is the Arch of Titus, which on it has carved a depiction of the triumphal procession in Rome in which the treasures of the temple, loot carried off by the Romans, were carried in triumphal procession. Titus does not have a good reputation in Jewish sources, as you might imagine. Rabbinic sources revile him as, quote, an evil man, son of an evil man, which makes it ironic beyond belief that the love of his life was a Jewish woman. The same man crushed the Jews and love the Jews. How could that be the case? How is that possible? Well, to understand it, we have to realize there was a variety of responses to Rome in the provinces. All over the empire, in province after province, there were revolts against the Romans. And yet, all over the empire, in province after province, there were people who admired the Romans, who worked with the Romans, collaborated, some might say, but they didn't think so. They admired the Roman Empire. They wanted to become part of the Roman Empire. They became Roman citizens, and they had no interest in a rebellion, and that was the case in Judea as well. We might compare it to British North America in 1776. After the American Revolution, I think it was John Adams who estimated that one-third of the people supported the revolution, one-third of the people supported the king, and one-third of the people were just indifferent, and they were neutral. And I would imagine that in Judea, at the time of the Great Revolt, in 66 and afterwards, something similar was in place. And so we meet Titus's girlfriend, his mistress. Her name was Julia Berenike. Berenike was a Jewish name. Julia, of course, is a Latin name. She was Jewish. She was a princess from the royal house of Judea. And she was a Roman citizen. 
Her brother was named Marcus Julius Agrippa. How Roman can a name get? He too was Jewish. They were both descended from King Herod, the famous and infamous King Herod, who had earlier ruled Judea and was a great ally of Rome. Marcus Julius Agrippa ruled a small kingdom, not Judea, but a small kingdom in what is today northern Israel and Lebanon. It covers the two. Judea was a Roman province at this point. He was very close to the Romans and to Titus in particular. Marcus Julius Agrippa went on a diplomatic mission with Titus in the year 68-69. As for Berenike, she was twice married and twice divorced. She served as her brother's de facto first lady. She and her brother were totally opposed to the revolt against Rome, and in the year 66, they tried to talk the people of Jerusalem out of the revolt, at some risk to their own lives. They tried to talk them out of it, but in vain. The revolt went on. Agrippa and Berenike left Jerusalem. They went back to his kingdom in the north, and that's probably where she met Titus in the year 67, when Titus and his father Vespasian were gathering their forces. Part of their forces was an army, a Jewish army, with troops supplied by Marcus Julius Agrippa to help the Romans put down the rebellion. Titus met Berenike, and he was smitten. He fell for her beauty and her charm, even though he was 28 and she was 39. She was 11 years older than him. One of our sources, the Roman historian Tacitus, says that never mind, even at the age of 39, Berenike was in the prime of her beauty, and she made the 28-year-old Titus burn with desire. So Titus and Vespasian go on to suppress the revolt. Titus is responsible for capturing Jerusalem and for the destruction of the temple. Afterwards, when Titus is back in Rome, Berenike and Marcus Julius Agrippa come to visit him there. Marcus Julius Agrippa is appointed to a high political office. As for Berenike, she moves into the palace with Titus. Think about it. Both Vespasian and Titus, both father and son, lived in succession with a common-law wife from the east. Vespasian lived with a Greek. Titus lived with a Jew. For each of them, as Romans, they were, as it were, taking a walk on the wild side. But Titus wasn't merely slumming. He was in love with Berenike, and people said that she expected him to marry him. He certainly showed great deference to her and let her have a lot of influence, as did Vespasian. Vespasian had invited her to sit in on the imperial council in a legal case involving her own interests. Her lawyer was the greatest lawyer of the day, a famous scholar whose name is still famous today as a Latin rhetorician, Quintilian. That's how influential she was, and that's how much she expected to reign at Titus's side. But the Roman people thought otherwise. They said no. They saw Berenike as another Cleopatra, an Eastern queen who had bewitched a Roman. They objected to a Jewish empress, not after what they had seen. They considered Jews in Judea as traitors who'd betrayed the Roman Empire, who'd risen in revolt. Two philosophers stood up in the theater in Rome and denounced Titus and Berenike. Titus struck back. He had one of those philosophers whipped, and he had the other beheaded. But in the end, Titus had to give way. He had to send Berenike away. 
as one of our ancient sources, the biographer Suetonius puts it, he had to send Berenike away much against his will and hers. The two lovers would not rule Rome. Well, let's go ahead a few generations and let's turn to the emperor Hadrian, who ruled between 117 and 138. Now, Hadrian married the boss's daughter, as it were. He married Vibia Sabina. She was the grandniece of his predecessor as emperor Trajan. Trajan had no children of his own, so his grandniece Sabina was the prize, and whoever got her was likely to follow Trajan on the throne, and it was Hadrian. So Hadrian was married to Sabina. But she was not the love of his life. The love of his life was a Greek, but she wasn't a Greek woman. The love of his life was a young Greek male named Antinous. He was probably a teenager when Hadrian met him. Antinous came from a city in what is today northwestern Turkey, about 150 miles east of Istanbul. What did Antinous and Hadrian have in common? Well, Antinous was Greek, he was a Greek speaker, and Hadrian was a huge lover of things Greek. Hadrian was a Hellenophile, we might say. He was the first emperor to wear a beard, Greek style. Greek men wore beards, Romans did not. But Hadrian's not clean-shaven, and he starts a trend of emperors who wear beards. The other thing that we know about Antinous was that he was very good-looking. How do we know this? We have no doubts about it because we have more images of Antinous than of any other figure from classical antiquity, except for Augustus or Hadrian. How many images? We have over a hundred statues of Antinous, plus coins and sculptural reliefs. That's a lot of statues. Why do we have all these images? Well, one reason was because Hadrian was the emperor and Hadrian was in love with Antinous. But as we'll see, there was another reason. We'll get to that in a moment. So like Mark Antony or Vespasian, Hadrian loved a Greek. And like Mark Antony, the love affair reached its denouement in Egypt. Ironically enough, Vespasian was also one of the few emperors to ever go to Egypt, but we don't know that kindness was there with him. So in the year 130, Hadrian went to Egypt with a large entourage. It was part inspection tour, part vacation, part trip to found a new Greek city in the Mid-Nile Valley, and part possibly a health trip as well, because Hadrian had some health issues, and it was thought that the dry climate of Egypt was especially salubrious. He had a large entourage. Roman emperors did not travel light. We think that as many as 5,000 people might have traveled with him. And among them were Sabina, his wife, and, of course, Antinous. Well, they went to Alexandria, the great metropolis of Egypt, uh, one of the great cities of the ancient world. Hadrian was something of an intellectual, and there he went to what was, in effect, the University of Alexandria, the museum. It's what the complex was called, uh, the home of the muses. And he engaged in debates with Greek thinkers. One of them, an intellectual named Favorinus, let Hadrian win their back-and-forth conversation. When asked why he let Hadrian win, Favorinus replied, who could contradict the Lord of 30 legions? 
Hadrian and Antinous left Alexandria on a bit of a vacation. They went off on a lion hunt in Egypt's western desert. Supposedly, Hadrian saved Antinous' life there and killed the beast. That, at least, is the official story. Then afterwards, the entire party took two ships and they went on a Nile cruise. They were heading for the Middle Nile Valley where Hadrian was going to found a new city. And then on October 24th, on or around October 24th of the year 130, tragedy struck. October 24th was the annual festival of the death of the god Osiris, who drowned in the Nile, and also of his eventual rebirth, celebrated by the Egyptians. It was right around then, either on that day or near it, when Antinous drowned in the Nile Valley. He was about 20 years old. What caused his death? Hadrian wrote that it was an accident, but not everyone was convinced. There were some Romans who said it was a suicide, that it was a suicide that might have been caused by an act of self-sacrifice. Some thought that Antinous was concerned that his lover Hadrian was really sick, and the only thing that would save him would be for Antinous to sacrifice his own life. Fact of the matter, though, is that Greeks and Romans were not in the practice of sacrificing their lives for someone else's health. There are others who say that Antinous committed suicide because he was depressed. And why was he depressed? Because in Greece and Rome, it was considered acceptable for a male to be in a love relationship with another male when he was a teenager, but not acceptable once he got into his 20s. And there were some who said that Antinous felt that he was being pressured by Hadrian to continue in that relationship. This is speculation. We really don't know if any of these things are true. And to me, it seems the likeliest explanation is that it was indeed an accident. Now, when the tragedy happened, they were near the site of the planned new city, which Hadrian no doubt intended to call Hadrian City, Hadrianopolis. Instead, he called it Antinopolis, Antinous City. He built it at the place where Antinous's body washed up onto the shore, and it was built into a showplace, a great city indeed. It was turned into a shrine commemorating Antinous. There was his tomb was there, and a temple to him was put up there. The city existed uh, until the 19th century or so when it was reused. The parts of it were used. Some of the material was burned and destroyed, so it no longer exists today. Meanwhile, in 130, the year 130, the emperor's party continued south down the Nile as if nothing had happened. And they visited a famous tourist site, a colossal statue of a pharaoh whom the Greeks called Memnon. This was really a great tourist site because there was a crack in the rock that gave out an unusual high-pitched sound, which could be observed especially at dawn. The Greeks thought this was miraculous. Probably what caused the sound, it's thought, was evaporation of dew in the rock. Uh, eventually, um, it, there was an earthquake that changed the configuration of things and the sound ceased to exist. Well, what's really interesting is that Sabina put up an inscription that marked her visit there. And the inscription says, Sabina Augusta, wife of the Emperor Caesar Hadrian, heard Memnon twice within the hour. She heard him speak twice. It's as if Sabina was saying in a way, well, you know, Antinous, he's not around anymore, but I'm here, remember me? And she 
put her name up there, not far from the place where Antinous had disappeared. As for Hadrian, he was very sad, of course, but he decided not to let the tragedy go to waste. He created a new religion. He had Antinous declared a god, and he had temples built. He established a priesthood and a series of athletic games in Antinous's honor. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many images of Antinous, because he was worshipped as a god. Some Romans ridiculed the new religious cult. They complained that Hadrian had misbehaved, that, quote, he had cried like a woman over Antinous, and they weren't about to worship him. And yet, the new religion was popular. It was so popular that Christian writers later complained about it. They saw it as a threat that needed to be done away with. Hadrian was an acute psychologist. He recognized that the idea of a young god from the East who died, but who could redeem others, would have a certain popularity. Hadrian never expected that the focus of the new religion would come from a place further eastward than Greece or Egypt. For our last case study, we're going to go ahead about a half century to the emperor Septimius Severus, who reigned from 193 to 211. Now, by the time Severus came to the throne, the Roman Empire was a very different place than it had been in the days of Augustus or even Vespasian or even Hadrian. The Roman legions were no longer staffed by Italians. Most of the legions came from elsewhere in the empire. Indeed, most of them probably came from the Danubian region from what is today Austria, Hungary, Serbia, various places in Central and Eastern and Northern Europe. And the emperors themselves did not come from Italy, or only rarely did. Septimius Severus did not come from Italy. He came from Africa. He came from what is today Libya. His family was of mixed descent. He had some ancestors who were immigrants from Italy. He had some ancestors who were descended from Carthaginians or at least from speakers of the Punic language. And it is possible that he had some ancestors who were black Africans. At least the portrait busts that we have of him suggest that possibility. It looks like he's partly of sub-Saharan African descent. Was Septimius the first black emperor? Possibly. We can't be sure. But one thing is sure. He's definitely the first emperor to marry an Arab. In the year 185, he married Julia Domna. She was the daughter of a rich and powerful family in the city of Emesa, today Homs, a wealthy city in Syria whose population had Arab roots. She claimed to number among her ancestors the rulers of the city before Rome had annexed it. Her father was priest of the local god, Elagabalus, as the Romans called him, which literally means the mountain god. The god was worshipped in the form of a conical black stone in a temple in the city. Her family members were native speakers of Aramaic, and they had Greek as a second language, and they were Roman citizens. Now, once upon a time, ambitious Roman men had wanted to marry into the old nobility of the Republic. Now, 
they were happy to take brides from the prominent families of the East, families that provided imperial administrators and Roman senators, and who could give rich dowries to their daughters, as Julia Domna's father surely did. Now, Domna was beautiful. We know that from coin images of her, and this remarkable theory, it's pretty speculative, but I, I think it's really interesting even so, that she even served as the model for the Venus de Milo, that famous marble statue in the Louvre, which comes from this period. In any case, Domna was fertile. She bore Severus two sons, thereby surely increasing her stock in his eyes and her influence. Thanks to her, the family had a chance of a dynasty. That would be Rome's first Libyo-Syrian ruling house. She was a cultivated woman. In addition to Aramaic and Greek, she also spoke Latin, though probably not as well. As empress, she surrounded herself with a loose circle of intellectuals. It probably included philosophers, mathematicians, and legal scholars. One of those in Domna's circle was an Eastern intellectual who had settled in Rome, and he gave her the title of the wise or the philosopher. Domna was a remarkable woman, and it wouldn't be surprising if her husband were in love with her. In any case, he went on to win the throne in a civil war. As emperor, he was a conqueror. Severus carved out a new province in northern Iraq, and he tried but failed to conquer Scotland. No less determined than her husband, Domna was a constant companion on campaign. Not for nothing did she bear the title Mother of the Camp. Now, Severus died in Britain, having failed to conquer Scotland. He died in the year 211 in York in northern England. Domna was in the camp. She was nearby. His two sons were at his side. It's said that on his deathbed, he turned to them and said, Guys, take care of each other. Have a united front. Always pay the soldiers and don't worry about anything else. Now, he knew whereof he spoke. The soldiers were the linchpin of the empire. They were the center of gravity. You couldn't rule without having the soldiers on your side. And the soldiers didn't have any special loyalty to Rome or even to Italy, and certainly not to any particular emperor. And his sons, when they followed him, certainly followed his advice. Severus's older son, Caracalla, succeeded him as emperor, sharing the rule at first with his younger brother named Gaeta. Now, Caracalla is actually a nickname. It comes from the heavy woolen military cloak, or Caracallus, which the emperor discovered in use by Roman soldiers in northern Europe and which he brought to the armies of the east. Caracalla was born Julius Bassianus, and he became Marcus Aurelius Antoninus after his father adopted himself into Marcus Aurelius's family. Coins and sculptures show that Caracalla was a strong-looking man with blunt features, curly hair, a close-cropped beard, a prominent nose, and a thick neck. The term gentle does not come to mind. But he loved his mother, and Domna, the mother of the camp, was now also the mother of the emperors. She played an important role as a sign of continuity and as a source of advice. Eventually, Caracalla put her in charge of his correspondence and replies to petitions. No imperial woman had ever held such an office before. 
It certainly attests both to Domna's literacy and perhaps even more to how few other people Caracalla felt he could trust with important jobs. Now, Caracalla trusted his mother with an important position, but he didn't listen to his mother's pleas. Less than a year after their father's death, Caracalla sent a team of soldiers to kill his brother. It took place in the palace. His brother Gaeta was there, and he ran for safety to his mother's arms, but they didn't help. He was killed in his mother's arms. She herself was wounded in her hand. Just imagine, Domna must have been distraught, and yet she did not resign. In spite of everything, she continued as one of Caracalla's advisors, whether because she felt it her duty or because she loved him or she loved power or for all these reasons. Meanwhile, Caracalla did follow his father in one thing. He paid the soldiers. He gave the Praetorian Guard a big bonus and purged his enemies. He increased spending on his soldiers and carried out his father's advice. Caracalla was shrewd, articulate, and ambitious, but also emotional, impulsive, and violent. He was a real physical guy. He had many enemies, which is no surprise. Who could trust a man who had ordered the murder of his brother? The Emperor Caracalla spent most of his reign on military campaigns, first in northern Europe and then in the east. He saw himself as a new Alexander the Great. He negotiated to marry the daughter of the king of Parthia, the king of Persia, as it were. When that failed, he prepared a war of conquest. Seen from today, Caracalla's great achievement was extending Roman citizenship to every free inhabitant of the empire. It was a law promulgated in 212. Earlier, Rome had extended citizenship as a reward to favored communities and to prominent local officials and to men who had served in the military for 25 years. Still, probably only a minority of free people were citizens. Now, all free Romans were Roman citizens. The motives might have been cynical. They might have been meant to increase the tax base. But nonetheless, it is an important moment in history when suddenly all the free people of the empire all enjoy citizenship. Caracalla's eyes were turned eastward. He wanted to be a great conqueror. And his mother, Domna, accompanied him to the east, and she based herself in Syria, while he himself advanced further eastward. Then in April 217, Caracalla was assassinated. The prefect of the Praetorian Guard, a man named Macrinus, discovered that he was next on the emperor's hit list, so he struck first. At his prompting, a soldier whom Caracalla had insulted stabbed the emperor to death. Macrinus then arranged for the assassin to be killed, and he disavowed any knowledge of the deed. When Domna got the news she was distraught, she might have been ill herself. In any case, she committed suicide. It was the sad end of the rule by Severus and his sons, but not by Domna's family. Macrinus was proclaimed emperor by his troops, but he lasted in power for only a year. He was replaced by another member of Domna's family. Her sister, Julia Misa, was determined to put their family back on the throne, and she did. The dynasty lasted nearly another 20 years, but that's another story. Let's look back. Kynus, Berenike, Antinous, 
Julia Domna, Greeks, Jews, Arabs, not to mention the part African Severus. The Roman Empire was a multi-ethnic empire and possibly a multi-racial empire. It was certainly a multicultural empire. And the Romans, in their loves as well as in their lies, were brutal but open-minded. And I think both of those are part of the secret for why Rome succeeded. They were violent, but they were also emotional. They killed, but they loved. And in everything they did, they thought big and they looked outward. One thing the Romans were not, they were not inward focused. They were not inward looking. They knew what you had to do to extend their empire to newcomers, and indeed they did. Well, that's the end of our three episodes about the Ten Caesars, about Roman emperors from Augustus from Constantine. We've had three episodes, War and Peace, Mothers and Sons, and Love and Sex. And about that love and sex, I've got to make one more pitch for my new book about Antony and Cleopatra, The War That Made the Roman Empire. For now, I want to thank you for joining me. It's been fun. I hope to see you again soon on another season of Antiquitas. Theme music by Lush Life.